Well, I wanna say it was so good to be on sabbatical these past few weeks, and uh, it's good to be back. Um, perhaps you've come to fellowship in this little window where I've been out for a few weeks at, uh, on, on the sabbatical, uh, so I, I'll introduce myself. My name's Lloyd Shadrach, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here, alongside Rob Sweet, who you have seen uh, over these weeks, who is our, our lead pastor. I wanna give a special thanks to Robbie Painter, Mike Vogt, uh, Monty Spurgeon. You know, what a gift that they're in our body. And uh, they stepped in to teach um, in, in my absence and as well as Rob, who, who carried a, a huge load as I stepped away for a little while and continued to carry that load. And I love it because, you know, when, you, it, I, when, when we have guest speakers, you guys clap for them. For Rob and I, it's just okie dokie, you know, we just, it's just whatever, but how, you clap for them because they're, because God has so gifted them and uh, their willingness to serve us in that way is just, just fantastic. Uh, Lisa and I were in Little Rock last weekend for the funeral of a dear, dear friend. Um, it's an interesting picture in my mind that I'm still unraveling, but my sabbatical time away began with a wedding. I did a wedding for uh, one of my daughter's dear friends and my sabbatical ended with a funeral, and there's something in that that I'm still wrestling with, but something about the nature of life and um, the good and the, and the most difficult. But while there in Little Rock, y'all, I ran into, because I think you, not everyone knows the story, but Lisa and I lived there, worked with family life for many years before we moved here. And I I'm, I'm walked into a Starbucks, and boom, I run into a couple I haven't seen in 25 years. And we used to work together at this, this ministry called Family Life, and he's a pastor now, and um, he's telling about sabbatical, and, and she said to me, uh, so has the Lord shown you anything new? Do you have any new insights from your time away? I kid you not, I didn't blink, and what came out of my mouth was, no, not really. <laughs> And it was true. Uh, and I, I think it came out because that, that is, uh, you know, God is my witness. It was true. And I've thought about it since. Like, uh, you know, no, not really, you know. And it was, it, and it's this, and I mean it. Um, I am so grateful I get to do what I get to do with who I get to do it with. And that includes each one of you. And the no, nothing new, doesn't surprise me in that because it's just a reminder how grateful I am that I got to do that and I get to step right back in and, and, and walk with you. So a full heart, a lot of gratitude around that. I hope all y'all had a great Thanksgiving. We certainly did. Um, gathered on our porch, um, family, friends, and it was a reminder, honestly, and I love that the weather broke a little bit warmer so we could be on our porch so we could all be at one long table because if we were in the house, you know, we'd be all separated out, kids' table, adult table, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we were on one table and it's just, you know what that is for me and I hope for you, a, a reminder of the table in the story of redemption, a living experience of gratitude, just being there with loved ones side by side across the table sharing uh, dreams, disappointments, gratitude uh, throughout the year. Thanksgiving marks a transition. You guys know this, marks a cultural transition and a church calendar transition. You know, culturally, um, you know, Thanksgiving, Black Friday, you know, it's all on, man, isn't it? It's like game on, uh, everything's going. From a, 
a Christian perspective, Carl mentioned this, Thanksgiving marks a turn into the Advent season, and that would be this Sunday's the first day of Advent. Advent means coming. And for generations, the church has marked off these four Sundays to prepare itself to celebrate the birth of, of Jesus. It's not an outward preparation like we will do you know, in homes and Carl's already had his tree up. I'm not sure it's gonna be brown by the time Christmas gets here. If you got one up, if you got a live one, but it's an inward preparation. It's, it's, it's those of us who follow Jesus saying, slow down, let me, look, let me think about the meaning of Christ's coming. Before the Thanksgiving dinner was over, I began to have a little bit of a knot in my stomach, a little tension in my chest, not from the food at all, but because my mind started racing on everything I have to get done and all you gotta do and all the expectations and how are we going to, and here we go again. Now, I love it, Carl, back there, wherever you are. I love the season as well, but the, the most wonderful time of the year can also be the most stressful, can it? as the expectations you know, rise and, and are, are difficult to meet. The truth is that our stressors, my own, are generally not tied to the simplicity of the birth of Jesus, but they're, they're more tied to the barnacles that have attached themselves to that story, whether cultural barnacles you know, around this season or quite frankly, church barnacles and Christian barnacles where they've gotten attached to the story of the birth and in many ways put things in the birth that aren't there or distorted things a bit to where we miss what the birth is all about. Some of you are, are still angry at me about the wise men, like as if I did this. But look, remember when we talked about the wise men? <laughs> and all I said was Matthew's, account doesn't have them there at the birth. And I didn't say take them out of the nativity, right? I didn't say that at all. But it's just, they weren't there. There's another detail. Here's where I'm going with this. There's another detail in the story um, that's gonna become the theme of our Advent season, our four weeks. Um, and I'll give it to you. The timing of when the wise men visited Jesus, and you know, we could go, that's rather somewhat could be inconsequential. But I think that the part of the story that is so obvious, because you're gonna see it in a little bit, it's so obvious, and yet we so often miss it that when we miss this part of the story, when we miss this detail, I think we miss the most important part of the story. Now to help us see that, what I'm gonna do, we're gonna get to the text in a moment. We're gonna dive straight into the, you know, it's the first, it's the first Sunday of Advent, but we're gonna read the Christmas story. I mean, we're gonna go right in it. But before we do, I think if we're gonna catch what I'm talking about, it might be helpful for me to just walk us through the telling of the Christmas story that we, including myself, we, we generally tell. I mean, this is what you're gonna hear 
you know, in churches. This may be the story you tell in home when you get your kids to act it out. This is what you're gonna hear in school plays, and you know, depending on school, whatever, but in you know, public community centers, whatever. Here's the story and how it's told. And, and I'm not fabricating anything, I don't think, in this, but this is, this is I think it's faithful to how we generally tell the story. It was some 2,000 years ago, there was a young girl and she was a virgin, but she was visited by the Holy Spirit and she was made pregnant. Her name was Mary. Uh, the man she was going to marry wanted to leave her because she was now pregnant. He thought by someone else that she was unfaithful, but an angel told him, no, no, this is God has placed this child in Mary and you're to remain with her. And so he did, and at that time, Israel was under the rule of Rome, and uh, a Roman ruler decreed, everybody go to your hometown so we can count how many of you there are. And the reason is, just the same reason we do census today, censuses today, is he didn't know how many people there were that he he could tax and fund the kingdom. So Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. It was way north of Joseph's hometown, which was Bethlehem, straight to the south. And pregnant with child, they made the journey south. Um, he, he had a donkey that he placed her on and you know, she rode the donkey. It was a very, very difficult journey And when they arrived, and this would have taken probably a week, they arrived in uh, Bethlehem, uh, Joseph's hometown where his family was from. And when Joseph knocked on the door of the inn, there was no room. It was cold, maybe raining. And so the innkeeper said, there's space where the animals stay in the stable. And so Joseph and Mary went to the stable and, it, and the baby came. She gave birth to Jesus and she placed him in a manger, which is the feeding trough of the animals. This is how Jesus was born. Now I'm gonna stop right there because our focus, I want to be on just what just I described, the birth of Jesus. You know, there's, there are shepherds, you know, there are angels, and all of, there's a star, there's all those things. But I'm just gonna stay right there in that, in that part of our story. And, you know, I, I added like it's raining, it's cold, we don't know. But, but you know, it's, that's the story I think that we generally hold to. We're asking two simple questions of this story that I just described. One would be this, is that what happened? And the second would would be, and I think this is critical, would be, what might we be missing? And might that thing we're missing be what matters most, okay? Now with that, um, that's, I think, a relatively faithful telling of how we tell the story. Let's, let's go to the text. It's Matthew and Luke, but we're gonna go to Luke chapter two, verses one through seven. One of two places where this story is told, and this is the longer one, and 
And we're gonna read it. I'm gonna ask you to follow along in your Bibles. You can follow along as I read this story. And then we're gonna do some biblical sleuthing where we're just gonna go, okay, let's look at this and go, okay, what exactly happened? At least, here's what's key. What did God reveal? What, what did God reveal that we needed to know about these events? Follow along in your Bibles. And the story goes, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I'm gonna give you two categories and I'm gonna grab the third one when we begin to apply this. The first thing, just a heading that we can hold here is I just wanna walk through briefly to, to note this. this. This story is historically grounded, okay? This is historically grounded. That is to say, these are events, y'all, that really happened. This is not a myth. Uh, these things happened at a certain time and a certain place and they're historically, archeologically validated, historically grounded. At the time of Jesus's birth, I said they were under Roman rule and they paid Roman taxes and this is what they did when they needed to know how many people were in the outlying regions of the empire that they wanted to tax and how much they would tax them. This is the first Caesar who took the title Augustus. And this word Augustus means uh, holy reverend. And this particular Caesar, Roman ruler, is the one who pushed forward that all Caesars were deities, that, that he himself and any Caesar was a god. And there's historic inscriptions of this particular Caesar which say of him, he is the savior of the whole world. That's who decreed, the, that's the, who sent the word out. Everyone needs to be registered. Bethlehem is here, you know, Israel, you know, just think, you know, kind of long rectangle. It's here, Nazareth is here. And it says they went up to Bethlehem, which is geographically accurate in the sense that they were going south and we'd go, go down, you know, to Birmingham. It's to go south, but they went up in elevation to get from where they were in Galilee, Nazareth, to go to Bethlehem. It was about 90 miles. Um, you know, I said that, you know, they, she, they, she rode on a donkey and we usually have the donkey in the plays and stuff. There's no mention of her riding on a donkey. Um, not to, you know, not to over 
analyze it, but it, it, in all likelihood, it, it's, it's a good chance she probably maybe didn't go on a donkey. Because while they were common and, and uh, they were expensive, and what we know about Joseph and Mary is they, they couldn't rub two pennies together. When they gave a sacrifice after Jesus was born, they used turtle doves, which is a sacrifice that poor people would make. So I don't know that she was on a donkey, but regardless, I mean, 90 miles, whether on a donkey or walking. You know, the best way I could get this in your mind's eye is to, to, you know, to help us think of a distance to an iconic place. And the, and the place I thought of immediately was, it would be like going from here to Bucky's on the other side of, <laughs> if you haven't been, you need to pay, make your pilgrimage, right? And so, but it's that far. Could you imagine ladies in particular, may I say, very pregnant, now we're going to walk, it might even be worse, you're gonna ride a donkey that far. It's historically grounded. It's just, it's, Luke writes in such ways to give us the markers. And then secondly, I'm gonna say it this way, and this is not a surprise. It's obviously theologically significant. But you can hold that category. It's theologically significant. What's happening here? Oh my, it's God fulfilling his promise. The law required that one would go to their hometown to be registered for this census. And, um, you know, like when we just, well, we had a census, you know, 2020 or somewhere. We had a census recently and um, you didn't have to go to where you were born, right? You just did it where you are. And yet, I find it interesting that even here, do you know on your passport, isn't it interesting on your passport, you have to put your place of birth. I mean, you hadn't been there in 48 years, but you got to put that on your passport. It's part of that identif identifying marker for us even today. I want to put this little story, this little story of, oh, this, is, this, this little event happened, right, which most of the world just thinks is a fable or, hey, that's in the Christian Bible. I mean, that's what they say happened. We believe it happened exactly as it says. But I want to take this little story and I want to slide it right into the grander story of, of the scripture, which we always want to do. Because this particular story starts way back in Genesis. Picture a timeline if the candles, the advent wreath represents the birth of Christ we're celebrating. You'd have to go way back thousands of years to the very beginning of time, creation itself. When our Bible tells us that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, uh, and in that moment, Genesis 3, what we call the fall, that everything fell apart. I mean, everything that's wrong with the world today, which is tied to the fall. And their relationship with God was blown apart, separated. Their relationship with each other as it is today for us as human beings is blown apart. Their, 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 their connection to their own heart, their own inner world is just blown apart. Their connection to creation is just all blown apart, Genesis 3. The curse of death marks everything. And in that moment, God makes a promise. In Genesis 3, it says, he says, there will be a man, a male child, singular. It's kind of cryptic and, you know, a little bit oblique, but there'll be a male child born of a woman who will crush the serpent's head. It's the very first hint of redemption. He will deal with death. Go forward. Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, he chooses a, a man, a pagan man, and God, through no 
credit to Abraham, God chooses Abraham and says, of you, I'm going to make a nation. I'm gonna give you a land. And through you, Abraham, the whole world's gonna be blessed. And it's kind of like, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, you tie it back to the first promise. It's God beginning to fill his promise to say, whenever that man born of a woman comes, it seems it's gonna come through this nation called Israel through the lineage of this man, Abraham. Move forward and, and we're at a point right here where that birth is back here about a thousand years before it happens. And in 2 Samuel, we read that God tells David, King David, it's gonna be through your family that the, the Messiah, the king that will reign forever is gonna come. So now it's tied to David's family go forward a little bit, and we're still 500 years before that. 500 years before it even happens. Malachi says, and this savior is gonna be born in Bethlehem. So this is what's unfolding. And then we get to that, to this, to our text. And I go through that to say, the story that we just read, oh my, it's nothing less than the fulfillment of God's promises. And when we see it in the context of the story of the, of the Bible, we see that, you know, we read these simple events. There was a ruler named Caesar Augustus, and he decreed that everyone's gonna get registered. And oh my gosh, everybody had to travel to the, all the machinations of this event. While people are making free choices, doing what they want, Caesar's exerting his power, you know, whatever it may be, we look at it and know that the one true God is bringing about his purposes and his plans through his creation, through his creatures, in his timing and his way. God's hand of providence, you all. His reign and rule of his creation and creatures for his purposes and plans, it's behind these decisions and these choices that the powerful is making and that the inconsequential person is making. None of us this morning escape the consequences of the fall. Um, there have been events within our church family uh, in recent weeks that are horrific and tragic and difficult. There are stories in your life right now that are not the way you wish they would be that's true for all of us. The Bible tells us in ways that we can't fully comprehend. So here's where I'm qualifying this. Can't fully comprehend it, but the Bible tells us enough to say, but you can trust who's in charge. That's what the Bible's message is. Presidents, prime ministers, dictators, despots, they may rule parts of the world, but they never have nor ever will thwart or delay God's purpose and plans. Even death, death reeks and it, it, it continues to exert itself in and amongst us and it will, we'll all die. But we know who's in control and who we can 
trust. So the birth narrative, is this historically grounded? My goodness, it's theologically significant beyond just a birth. It's, it's, a, it's a tangible reminder of God's faithfulness. But it's also, and this is the third category I'm gonna give you, and this is where it gets very personal. It's personally relevant. What do I mean by that? I think it, what I mean by is it, it invites us to something. It's not just to be read and go, that's good, what a story. Here's where, I'm gonna, here's where I'm gonna suggest we get the story wrong, which, which may be too strong. I, I could back up from that and say, here's where I think we miss what's perhaps right in front of our eyes in the story. And let me say at the outset, what I'm gonna describe to you and what I'm gonna walk you through right now, um, I wouldn't die for it. So uh, it, this is not the resurrection this is not the Trinity. This is not about the deity of Jesus, inarguable, dogmatic dogma that a follower of Christ would die for. And yet, I think when we miss what the text says and the historical context expresses to us, I think we miss the most important part of the story. Start here. Look at verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. A simple reading, like if we just read that, you know, you're in an English class and you read that, it would be, okay, while they were there means they were there for a period of time. That's what it, the plain sense is. He doesn't say, and the night they arrived, the snow was falling and it was cold. And he knocked on the door and no one would let him in. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't go down that path at all. It just says, while they were there, the time came, you know, her water broke and labor pains and time came for her to give birth. Now, we've got we to take ourselves back and, and, and go, okay, it, here's another way to see the story. And I think this, again, I'm not gonna die for it, but I think this is, seems more reasonable as we read it. Rather than showing up in Bethlehem and being turned away and having to find a stable, you know, just an uncouth place to bear her child. If they were there for a while, it seems reasonable that Joseph would have sought a place to stay. And it seems even more reasonable that in a context where hospitality is practiced in ways you and I scarcely practice it, meaning they practice hospitality in that context. It would, it would be unthinkable, unthinkable for a, a, in that context for a, a family member to come and to be turned away from shelter, much less a pregnant woman. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this is, I, it, it'd be hard to get your head around that that would happen. And that Joseph is a relative of King David. 
And it's not like they would have said, you gotta take 23 and me before we know. It's not that at all. Because do you know how they keep records of genealogies, the history of Israel? They would know this man. And may I say that they would have not turned him away. So are you with me on this? It's like he would have found a place. It's not even... We don't think, it's not that he got there and she was having the baby and they're trying to find some roof to get under at all. You might say, well, Lloyd, it says he was laid in a manger. That's a feeding trough. And I go, yeah, it does. That is what a manger would be where the, you'd put hay, where the grain, where the animals could eat. That is exactly that. And you might say, and, he, and it says there was no place for them in the inn. What it doesn't say is that there was an innkeeper. We don't have an innkeeper. It's gonna rule one of the kids out of the play, but it's not there. Um, start here. Were there inns? You know, like what we think of an inn, a hotel, Motel 8, I don't know, Hampton Inn. I mean, were there inns when, in, that, in those days? And the answer is absolutely. Yes, yes, there were inns. Um, think about the Good Samaritan. You know that story, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, actually told in the Gospel of Luke. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you, Luke 10, 34. Jesus describes the story this way. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the Greek word here is uh, pandohion, it is literally a place where travelers can pay for lodging and meals. They sent him on his own animal, brought him to a pandohion, and took care of him. There you go. There were inns in that day. But when Luke says here in chapter 2, verse 7, there was no place for them in the inn, it's not the same Greek word. And may I say to you guys, I don't, I didn't know that. I got to look it up just like you do. I go, wait, what? I got to go look at, you know, the Greek lexicon, et cetera. But it's not the same. In fact, Luke says this when, in, in our passage. He writes, there was no room for them in the ketalama. Like not pandohion, in the ketalama. There was no room for them in the ketalama. Well, what does ketalama mean? What is that? It is by definition, the spare or upper room in a, private in a private house or in a village where travelers receive hospitality and where no payment was expected. Is there another place that Luke speaks of something like this? There is. You don't need to turn there. Luke twenty two eleven. Jesus sends his disciples to get ready for the Passover meal. Right, And he sends them out, and here's what Luke writes. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And you're not gonna shock you. The word there is ketalama. Let me, let me show it to you graphically. And, and this is something, again, I always, I always say this just because I want you to be informed. There's usually nothing I teach or say, y'all, that can't be Googled. Cat's out of the bag. I mean, just, I, it's the truth now and good, good for all of us, you know? 
you wanna watch their sources, but <laughs> I say that. So you can, you can look all this up. There are different ways to, 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 to see images, et cetera. There's some 3D images, but I'm gonna stick with just a, a, um, a, a drawing that I wanna walk you through of, a, of what archeology span reveals, a typical home in the time of Jesus, okay? And then I'm gonna visualize it for you. But look on the screens, first of all. A typical home in that day, um, this, it, it's actually three levels, okay? And I'm gonna show you that. But the, the back room and the, you know, the highest level, the quote third floor of the, of the house, so to speak, would have been a, a, a guest room. And you see the ketalama there. That would be the guest room where Jesus celebrated the Passover in a home's guest room that they would have for people. There'd usually and often might be a, you know, a separate interest for that, but below it, below it would be the family living room. So y'all, this is how, how they typically lived, um, all one big room. It all happened right there. You know, it's not like separate bedrooms, everybody decorates their own room, we have a dining room, we have a, no, it's just one big room. And in that room on the edge here would be mangers. Now, what those would be, let's just say that it could be that it was bedrock on, the, on that level and, and that bedrock, they might chisel out from the rock little hollow spots, you know, like bowl-like things, can I say that? Or if it was dirt, it would dig, dig out something that they would put hay in. Well, why do you need hay there? Because in this home, and again, all, this is all open, is you would step down some steps to the lowest level where there was an opening and that lower level is where they would put their animals at night. Where you, you don't, you're not gonna leave them out where they could get stolen or, or, or harmed. They would bring them in and the animals would be part of the home. I mean, it's like having a pet, but you know, they, they got their animals in there. And you'd note the animals would feed from the manger. So, so I want you to visualize this and, and when you read I think it makes sense of the story and in other parts of our gospel account. But picture it this way. If I was to lay that house up here, let's just say I laid that house up here at a long angle like this, okay? Just use your mind's eye at a long angle like this. The back end of the house would be the guest room, okay? So back here, but it would all be open and you could look down upon from the guest room, you could look down upon the larger area, perhaps, would be here, and the whole, this is where it all happened, y'all. This is where you slept, ate, cooked. Everything goes on right here in this large family room. But on the edge of the family room, picture in your mind's eye, just like, just like I'm doing right here, it would be, there would be a step down, and on this level, it's just dirt. It's, it's the barn-like floor. It's hay. And we're gonna bring, I'm gonna bring my animals in. And my animals are gonna be right here. And right on this edge, I know some in the back can't see, but just imagine the stage, there's these two, on this one in particular, mangers, two places where I'm gonna put the hay so the sheep can you know, go over here and eat. You know? um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a picture of that, of that home. Now, I walk us through all of that to say this. You need to get rid of your nativity scenes. I am kidding, <laughs> totally, 
totally kidding. Like, it's almost like, are you saying I need to get rid of that little steeple in the shed? No, keep your crash, you know, keep it that you've had for generations um, and, and you can show it because it's fine. And there's something way, way more important that we miss that I want you to see and really see. It seems that I think a family member of Joseph's welcomed them into their home didn't relegate them to the barn. Just makes more sense that it would welcome into their home. Now the guest room was already taken. So sorry. I mean, because you know, people are coming for the census, so perhaps it was gone. But welcome them into the home, into the family room and the living area. And everything that happens in this story would is fits this picture and would play out as we look at it. You go, well, it's not, an ideal, it's not really an ideal setting for a birth. And I go, I think when I think about it, I go, is there a better setting to be with family in this home? When the story, and, and again, I told you I wouldn't die for this, but when the story when the detail of the story becomes more about no vacancy, right? Or, you know, you say, no room in the end. When it, when it, when it comes to that, I think we, we can overlook or miss what I think is right in front of us. Someone made room for Jesus. They weren't shunned. I think a family member made room for Jesus. And the story in, of Christmas is not about no room at the end. There was room. It was the right room when needed. And perhaps this is the most important thing of all. Making room for Jesus makes all the difference. You can read the story, can celebrate Christmas, but are we making room for Jesus? It doesn't have to be a cleaned out space, you know? Staying on this metaphor of making room, make room. Um, I, I know I totally embarrassed my wife this morning because I, I, you know, I, I, I said this, but I, so I already said it, I can say it again. But, um, <laughs> but in this way, and, 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 and you guys get this, where, you know, when we just live life in our home, but then uh, we're gonna have a fellowship group over. We gotta get, you know. And so the, the day you have guests in your home, it's like cleanup day, right? You should sell your home the day you're gonna entertain guests. So you clean up, and I don't know about y'all, but you know, Yes, a lot of stuff ends up in the closet, you know, that's normally out. And the, sometimes there's even, there's even a whole room that no one goes in, 
because you clean up. <laughs> to make room for Jesus is to make room right in the mess. He's most at home, not when you've cleaned it out, but where it's a place you kind of embarrass, he's, he's coming in. But that's to make room for him in your world, in your life. When I say make room for Jesus, again, I'm, I'm stretching this metaphor a bit, but I'm, I'm telling you the Bible says that where Jesus, where Jesus is, there is hope and there is life. And you might think about your room, okay, if I can offer this, in this way. Your need is a room he wants to be in. Your loss is a room he wants to be in. Your fear your anxiety, your confusion, your hurt, your emptiness, your darkness. Make room for Jesus in that. And when I say make room, I'm trying to get, get it's, it's to in that moment to trust Christ is with me. And when we, when we bring Christ into that, yucky place or hard place, when we bring him into that fear, when we bring him in by faith, I trust you're with me in that. It's not that the fear even goes away. It's not that everything turns out okay. It's this, his presence changes everything and we find his presence is more than enough. His presence, y'all, when we're experiencing his presence, by faith, trusting Christ in this moment, we actually get a, a foretaste of home. That's what his presence brings. It's like, I'm tasting what I was ultimately made for. The full presence of Jesus. I wanna invite Carl and the team back out because our, our application here on this first Sunday of Advent is it's a rather sobering you know, preparation. But I wanna say if we're going to embrace and really get the, when this is fully lit, we light the Christ candle and the hope of Christ, we're gonna get it. See, you, you gotta back up and you gotta, you gotta get in a little bit of the darker place, the reality of life as it is, and go, this is life without him. And oh, how brightly that shines when we do. And that's what we're doing this morning. I'm inviting you to think about the rooms in your world and life. Have you, invite, have you made room for Jesus right there? I'm gonna ask you to stand, if you would, please, and we're gonna, we're gonna let this song be our application. You can take it in a number of ways. One may be to sing it and let the lyrics be your prayer. Another way is to let it be sung over you. And as those words roll over you, as you see those words, to pray. And I would pray that all of us in the room, online, would take these moments with a, a deep sense of reverence.
And, and I say this not because of me by any means, but because of the text. This may be the most important moment in your whole Christmas season in this way. That you would pause, which is what we're doing, and pay attention to what the Spirit is prompting in you. And to be aware, perhaps, of places that Jesus has not been welcome. <laughs> Maybe the closet that said, well, we're just not gonna go in there right now. We're gonna get through Christmas, then I'll deal with it. No, no, no. We bring Jesus into every part of our world, our life, our hearts. We'll sing these words, and may they be true, that when we slow ourselves down, which is a difficult thing to do at this season, isn't it? We trust that through thorny ways, he leads to a joyful end. That his voice still today calms wind and waves. And that what we lose, what is taken in this life, he alone can make full.